Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's Bible study is Lesson 3 over the book of Isaiah, chapters 6 and 7. Hello and welcome back. Time for Bible study. Isaiah 6 is where we were last time. It's where we're going to pick up this time. We're going to go ahead and read the entire chapter because it is an, one entire thought, but we, we've gone down through chapter, I mean, verse 7 uh, last time, and so we're going to be picking up there really uh, the conversation, if you will, in uh, verse 8 and making our way not very far. We, we burned through a lot of chapters last time, and we're only going to make it through two, uh, or actually one and a half tonight, just because the topic is, uh, needs to have some focus and some time, because it is very much embattled. I mean, why, why would people question the virgin birth? Well, because there are satanic reasons to question it, if, if you want the straight answer. There is very good satanic reasons to answer. Uh, there's not any good reasons. There's very good satanic reasons. So, uh, Again, people that question, every time somebody questions the scriptures, remember you're having a conversation actually with the devil. They're not the devil, but the devil is talking through them. I'm telling you, if the devil could talk, talk through Peter and, Je and Jesus acknowledged it, he can talk through anybody. So be careful, as Jesus said to James and John, be careful because sometimes we do not know what spirit we are of. Be careful. The devil can talk in your ear and make you talk out of your mouth the stuff that you uh, shouldn't be saying. So... Anybody live long enough knows that's possible. Let's pray, and uh, we're going to see what's, what's going on here. God, we thank you for uh, fellowship. Thank you that we can get to know each other. Thank you for Jeff and for his testimony and for drawing him to yourself, Lord. We're each one of us your own special projects that you have uh, worked and moved. You have orchestrated the events of our life to draw us to yourself, God. I pray that you would help us to be patient with those that you're drawing. Also, Lord, we would be patient to pray, patient to work, patient to speak, patient to know that your word is being sown in their lives, and we have no idea when they're going to come to the place and time of, of faith, but we are going to continue to push and pray in that direction. So God, we pray that we, you would help us grow today, not so that we can understand just for the sake of understanding, but so that we can understand you and who you are, and that's the purpose of the scriptures. You're telling us about yourself, and so we want to know that, God. We pray that that would be our desire in our heart. Thank you, Lord. We ask you to fill this place with your spirit, protect us here, and open our eyes to the truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 6 is where Isaiah stops in his uh, prophecies, I guess you could say, about what's going to happen to Israel, and he tells us the story of his, it's the Jeff story, how you came to Jesus kind of story. Well, it's the how he came to ministry kind of story, and it happened on the event of the death of one of his cousins, and in particular, King Uzziah. Remember, Isaiah is of the royal line. He's bloodline of David. He's got access to the throne room. Most of these prophets were on the outside. The Jeremiah's and the Ezekiel's were outsiders. And they were not welcome in the high courts. They were not welcome in the places of power. Isaiah is the opposite of that. He's kind of like born with a silver spoon in his mouth, except he's no different than the other prophets. He does not hold back a single thing. But uh, this is just his story is different, and that's the way it is with all of us. All of our stories are different. God uses anybody can't use anybody if we'll submit ourselves to him. And so here's Isaiah's story of his submission to God. In the year King Uzziah died of death, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filled with the temple, and seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. We had these throne room scenes we looked at last time, and very similar situations every time with the exception of the one in the book of Revelation. And one called out to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth 
is full of his glory. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? In fact, God tells Solomon, Behold, do I not fill the heavens and the earth? In other words, where are you going to go? Where are you going to hide? Where, where do, what, what place do I not see and, and hear and understand? And the answer is nowhere. So filling the whole earth, it says, with his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke, filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. Every time a person experiences God in this personal way, every time they're scared absolutely beyond, beyond life. So the whole thing of you want to see God, you want to see God, um, you're going to get to see him, but I wouldn't clamor for that day, honestly. I just, I'm just saying, um, you've never been that scared. I'm just saying. There's not a thing on earth, not a thing you experience in earth, other than experiencing with God that can scare you as bad as that. There's nothing. One of the seraphim flew to him, flew to me, I'm sorry, with a burning coal in his hand, which had been taken from the altar tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity has been taken away, your sin is forgiven. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, I send me. So this is the beginning of his, his ministry, sometimes right at the end or at, right at the end of, the, of King Uzziah's reign. And then he has a 50-year some odd, maybe 60-year some odd ministry of, of, prof, of being a prophet of God. But notice his call. Would you like this call? I mean, God calls me to ministry, I'm thinking it's going to be positive, right? Thousands of converts, hundreds of thousands of members in the church and all that stuff. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, not that God can't do that. But notice what his call is. He says, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. You're going to hear it, but you won't understand it. Keep on looking, but do not understand. You won't be able to fathom what you're actually perceiving there. Render the hearts of this people insensitive and their ears dull, and their eyes dim, lest they would see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. So this is uh, some tough stuff. There is a point in life, there can be, we always talk about when is, when is the chances of a person over. Well, of course we know it's over when they're dead. That's it. You don't have another chance in this life. But there is, at least for some, a point in life in which your chances are over while you still live. Notice what this is the point that's getting here. Notice the, the, the point of death, which is an obvious time, but there is a point in life, possibly, and again, that's up to God, where they will not be able to hear anymore, and their chance to come to God has been closed. It was true for these people. Notice his ministry was to basically make them less able to see and hear. Not more. Now we go to preach the truth so that people will see and hear, right? So that people will understand and they will perceive. And, and God said to Isaiah, your ministry is going to be the opposite. Your ministry will be so that they do not, they're not able to see or hear anymore. Because that's a judgment from God. I, I, I uh, want to remind you of a circumstance that took place. In, uh, it's, it, it's called judicial hardening. A circumstance that took place in the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 12 or up to Matthew 12, Jesus has been speaking basically in very clear terms. Uh, uh, changes his preaching style after chapter 12. You want to know why? Because the Pharisees, that's the place where they come to him and say, you, you do this through the power of Beelzebub. 
this healing and this delivering of demons and all this, it's because you use satanic power to remove Satan. And if you'll watch the story from that point on, his preaching completely changes. He does not one more time in public preach plainly. He preaches in nothing but parables. Of course, we always think of parables, and they are for us, as opportunities to learn. But they were not opportunities for the people of that day to learn. It was a judicial hardening. He basically said, I preach and I preach very clearly to you. Now you're saying that what I do is by the power of Satan. I will not give you a clear message again. Now, you may have to simmer on that for a bit. It may bother you. And I would just say, uh, you're just going to have to find a way to get over it. God does what he wants to do. He doesn't owe us anything. It's, it's not fair. Well, no, number one, life isn't fair. If it was fair, none of us would ever get a message of any hope whatsoever. So God is already not being fair to us. God's already blessing us. And that if he chooses to shut the door before death comes, that is definitely his prerogative. But notice the disciples question Jesus here in chapter 13 Matthew. Matthew 13, verses 10, 10 through 13. Why do you speak to the people in parables? Well, up until this time, he's preaching these clear sermons. It's very clear. He's explaining himself. He's talking. We have Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, right? These are, this is a mass, a sermon, incredibly clear, uh, talking about these things. He had just tons of people listening to him. And then all of a sudden, boom, after chapter 12, he doesn't do it anymore. And the disciples recognize that. You quit speaking plainly. Why do you speak in parables? Notice Jesus' explanation. Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Can God do that? Yes, he can. Anytime he wants. For any reason that he wants. He absolutely doesn't owe us one good thing. Whoever has will be given more. That is knowledge. Who will have an abundance, and whoever does not have, even what he, they will what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables, though here he's quoting Isaiah. Though seeing, they see not. Though hearing, they hear not or understand. So this judicial hardening, this, it's one thing, as we said this morning, it's one thing for you to forsake God. It's another thing for God to forsake you. You continue to turn your back on God. Uh, you can't necessarily do that indefinitely. It's not healthy, first of all, just for you to do that. It's not going to be good for you because it's going to send you down a bad path. But when God finally says, done with him, done with her, that is the worst place a person would ever be. What, what is hell, by the way? It's God forsaken. It's a place where God forsakes people forever. Forever. You, you can enter, as, as we can in this life, by trusting Christ as Savior, we can enter into eternal life with God and into, into an experience where we taste the heavenly glories through the Holy Spirit. You can also enter in, because of your decisions, you can also enter into the first taste of hell, where you can be forsaken by God himself. Very, very biblical position. We have to understand this. It's very serious. If people want to mess around with God. We can just float through life. It's no big deal. It is, it, it is absolutely a big deal. Your whole life is hung on it. You're being lied to by the liar, talking you out of the Word of God, talking you out of the truth, talking you got other days, you got weeks, you got months, you'll get serious to God when you get grown up or when you get older, or when you get your job finished, or when you have kids, or after your kids are out of the house, or all these different lies and foolish things that we say to ourselves. You're being lied to. You're being lied to. That message is not coming from the Spirit of God. There are other spirits, and it's definitely not the Spirit of God. So, so back to, back to uh, Isaiah, verses 11 through uh, 13. So, then I said, Lord, 
How long? How long is my ministry going to be? He answered until, notice, notice the purpose. It's not to make them better. There's some ministries that don't make people better. Isaiah had one of those. How would you like that one? uh, Jeremiah had a similar ministry. No converts. He says, you're not going to convert a single person. And he didn't. He didn't. Until the cities are devastated, how long? Until And without inhabitants, until houses are without people, and the land is utterly destroyed, Lord is, until the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the, in the midst. Yet there will be a tenth portion. Notice there is still mercy from God. There will be a tenth portion in, in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak. There you go, Pete. The terebinth tree, right? We have those here in town, by the way. I can point them out to you. Terebinth, we have them. It's just because it was a common tree in Israel, like the oak. It's more common in the southern portions of Israel. You can see it when you, go, when, you and, when, when you and your wife go to Israel with us. I can show you a terebinth tree. There are some around town, but I can't show you because then that would be, then you wouldn't go to Israel. <laughs> so, no, you have to go. And then I'll point out that it was down the street from where you live. <laughs> like a terebinth or an oak, it's just a common tree. We call them down here salt cedars. You may have heard them called salt cedars. You see them... Uh, Trying to think where the most prominent ones. They, they bunch of them died in the freeze or tropical. They don't do well in cold, huh? These are some terebinth trees. Okay, yeah. So they, they, there was a bunch of them growing next to uh, the old yacht club where we lived there on on Eturia, and then the yacht club got torn down and the trees got torn down. But anyway, the terebinth is, is a common tree. You would recognize it. Notice, but whose stump remains when it's felled? So he's talking about there, there's still going to be a remnant. So so God has forsaken Israel, but not 100 percent. Uh, not all the way across the board. Second uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter two, verses eleven and twelve. Because we talked about we talked about us forsaking God, but what happens when God forsakes you? Look at what this says. Talk about terrible. For this reason, because they're stubborn and disobedient, because they refuse to listen to God, it's the story that's going on there in chapter two of Second Thessalonians. He says, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion. So, so if you continue to follow lies and listen to lies and want, just lie to me, please. Tell me a myth. I'll listen to anything but the truth. There can come a day in which God will give you a lie that you will never be able to undo. See, the lies that, you're, that we suck in, the lies that we believe, they're, they're, we're able to get those undone because God can intervene. But God will get to the point where, and I don't know what that point is, where he just says, since you want lies, then I will give you a lie that you won't be able to see through. So notice, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Notice that's before death. That's before. Like I said, how do we know when that's happened to a person? We don't. When we're having your funeral, we know. You know more chances. But, but all the way through the Scriptures, it demonstrates that a person can be rebellious and hard-hearted enough to the place where God will start hardening them and forsaking them himself. You can have it that way if you really want that. It's not, it's not just like God's got to sit around and just, I can't wait till she dies because, man, I'm going to let her have it. No. God can start his judgments early, ahead of death. Just like, again, just like we can start everlasting life by trusting Christ, we can start living an everlasting death because of our rejection of Christ. So he who rejects him is, is still dead in their sins. The scripture tells us that. Uh, lies can be very powerful. So, but he says there is going to be a remnant. Let's, let's, let's go look at that. We've referred to that. we referred to that this morning. Let's go hold your place here in Isaiah. You go with me to Romans chapter 11.
Romans uh, 9, 10, and 11 is Paul's lamenting over the children of Israel, giving us answers. So, so, so has God forsaken them forever? He's definitely hardened them in time in the short run. But is he never going to come back to Israel? Well, the answer is given pretty plainly here. In fact, very plainly in Romans chapter 9, chapters 9, 10, 11. But look at uh, Romans 11, beginning in verse 7. What then? That which Israel was seeking, life with God, heaven, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were what? Hardened. Because they wouldn't listen to God. So you're going to harden your heart, harden your heart, harden your heart. Guess what? God can eventually start hardening your heart. And it's an altogether different thing. Forsake God, forsake God, forsake God, but then God forsakes you. Altogether different thing. Just as it is written, God gave them the spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap. It's out of the Psalms. And uh, 69. And a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened and to see not and bend their backs forever. This is David's just wish on these people who were so, so rebellious. That I say then, did they stumble so as to fall? In other words, permanently, like gone, like Israel is now written off? May it never be, the way the, the Greek is meganoita. No way, absolutely not. It's like it's yelling and without yelling. No way. But their transgression was salvation, but through their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, verse 25 through 29. For I do not want you, brethren, to be informed about the mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening, it's not a permanent hardening, it's not forever. Has God forsaken the Jews? Absolutely he has. Is it permanent? Absolutely it's not. They're still here. The people that he's forsaken are not here. You want to know where they are? Well, I'll let you guess. The Jews are still here. So a partial hardening is happening to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What in the world is that? You know, the church has basically been, largely been a Gentile movement. Not Jewish. There's been a remnant, just like it tells us here in Isaiah. There's been a small group. There's been a, a obviously Paul is writing this about the Jews he wishes were not hardened, but they are, but Paul himself is also a Jew, right? And your New Testament was written with the exception of the stuff that Luke wrote, all by Jewish people. So it's not as if there aren't Jews being saved in the time and the age of the church. It's just that the percentage-wise, percentage it's very small. Mainly, the church has been, since its inception, really, even the first century, has been a Gentile movement, largely. Just sheer numbers. So, so until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, what does that mean? Does that mean there's a number of Gentiles that are coming in? Exactly. Do you know what that number is? No, you don't. And neither do I. Isn't it true that God knows the number that's going to be in heaven and hell? Well, yeah, maybe we should say, is there anything that God doesn't know? Of course. Of course. God keeps, God's a numbers guy, 100%. We're not divulging that information. He's not to us. But, but as, as much as there's going to be Gentiles come in, and not until then, when God is done with the church, then all Israel, notice, will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. This is end time stuff. This is, this is uh, uh, um, tribulation stuff. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Again, because God says, until, and we talked about this morning, you're going to forsake me, I'll forsake you until. Until you acknowledge me. And they will. 
From the standpoint of the gospel, it says they're enemies for your sake. But for the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Because why? God made a promise to the fathers, and God sticks with his promises. God does, it is the same as him writing history in advance. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. They're without, if you have a King James, without repentance. I actually prefer that translation. In other words, God does not repent of them. You can repent of them. God's called you to do something. You can say, no, 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 I'm telling you. God is not going to let up on it. I can tell you personal experience. God's not going to let up on it. So let's go back. We're ready to look at now Isaiah 7, fresh ground, and uh, move into this uh, part of, very important part of doctrine, not to say that anything we haven't been discussing already is not. But it starts off with this story, this modern, this uh, current event that's taking place during the time of Isaiah's ministry. And from, after Uzziah comes King, um, I think Uzziah, after him comes King Ahaz. So Uzziah was for the most part a good guy. He got full of himself and got stricken with leprosy, but he was, he was an honest guy and he was a guy that honored God with his life. But he had a son named Ahaz who was about as worthless as a, as a broken stick. So this, this is him. This is happening. Isaiah is, is being a faithful minister, faithful prophet during this time. came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. I'm sorry, Jotham is a small, small blip in there. He's only like a year uh, king. Forgot about him. That Rezin, the king of Aram, so that's Syria today, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom. Remember, Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. So, so they're coming, these two allied kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria, and they're going to come down and take over Jerusalem and put a vassal king in its place, and they had all these, all these plans, but it didn't work out. And when it was reported to the house of David, that's where Ahaz is king, right? Saying, Arameans are camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Because the way they did things back then was you didn't surrender and then they let you go. They came in and killed everybody. Women, children, everybody. Just the way they rolled. Really nice people. Shook like the trees of the forest with the wind. And then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now and meet Ahaz, you and your son, son Sha'er Jashub, at the, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. You can go there and stand with us, by the way, if you go to Israel this, this fall, I know exactly where that is. It was right here where this happened. I can take you that spot. And say to him, take care and be calm and have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. That's who he's referring to, the two kings that are coming against him. On the account of the fierce anger of Rezin of Aram and the, the son of Remaliah, because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tobiel as a king, this vassal king in their midst. And thus says the Lord, it shall not stand or it shall not come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus. God says, I know where this guy lives. It's in the city. I know how to get to him. And the head of Damascus is resin, this king. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And that's happened exactly like that. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. That was their, their capital city. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And if you will not believe, you will surely not last. In other words, I'm telling you the truth. This is how it's going to happen. Then the Lord spoke to Ahaz. 
saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God and make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Now, how would you like to have that? Ask me to do whatever you can come up with in your wildest imaginations, and I will do it as a sign to you. So what would you do, by the way? Anything? So the Bible says don't put the Lord your God to the test unless God tells you to put him to the test, and then you better do what he says to do. So, because... Ahaz, who, by the way, is not a godly man, is going to get all godly here on us in just a minute, and it's just total, uh, he's just a total hypocrite. Watch what he does. And Ahaz says, I will not ask the Lord, nor will I put him to the test. That's probably the first command he's ever tried to obey in his life. I'm not kidding. The guy is worthless. The Lord said, listen now, O house of David, is it too light, slight a thing for you to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of God? So he's just, he's made himself just a... Uh, a stink around all of Jerusalem, and now he's stinking up the presence of God. Therefore, since he didn't choose something big as a sign, God chose something big. And he's going to shift from the present circumstances of, well, they're being invaded by these two kingdoms, and it's going to be bad, which was short-lived and which worked out exactly the way God said. He's going to shift from that current event to a far future event, in fact, an overarching event over all humanity by the verse that he gives us here in verse 15. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Pay careful attention to that. So, so what is the sign to you? First of all, let's just, let's just analyze that statement for a second. What if I say to you, the sign that I'm correct is that the sun's going to come up tomorrow? What's the chances of me being correct? <laughs> you would just say, preacher's full of it. Because the sun comes up every day. I mean, that's not a sign. The sign will be that it will get lighter in the morning and darker in the evening. Oh, what kind of prophet is that, right? So, so you understand when, when he says sign, this is a class of experience that is outside of the natural order of things. It's natural that it gets light in the morning, dark in the evening, the sun comes up, you know, sunsets in the evenings. I mean, it's, that's natural. That, the sign is going to be that you will be breathing in the next 15 minutes, you know, or, you know, something ridiculous. There's no sign in that. Where's the miraculous in that? There's no sign in that. So, so first of all, understand what the, the class of experience that God is predicting here. The, the, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child. Now, that's a sign. I'm talk about a man coming or a woman coming to this world apart from the instrumentality of a, of a male. Wow. That does not happen. And he will, she will bear a son. And she will call his name God with us. That's the word Emmanuel. So, so here we have this, this, the crux of the debate over this whole virgin birth of Jesus with many saying, by the way, many scholars, many with letters after their name like mine, uh, who I wouldn't give you uh, two cents for. And somebody with letters after their names means nothing. You know why I got my doctorate degree? Because I could. And I didn't, here, here's the other thing that's going to shock you, because I know you're so impressed with my doctorate degrees. I didn't learn a thing. You know why? Because that's not what a doctorate degree does. Master's degrees, undergrad degrees, they, can, they say, we're going to tell you what to think. A doctorate degree, they say, tell us how you think. You don't learn anything. You just simply have to express that which you already know. And if you don't know it, well, then they don't give you a doctorate degree. 
So it, it doesn't mean anything for people to have letters after their name, especially if, especially if they use those letters as somehow to beat you over the head that they're smarter than you and better than you. Immediately, you know, these are not people you need to be listening to. So there's a lot of people out there with a lot of letters after their name sitting behind a mahogany desk spouting the words of demons. And I'm, I'm not trying to... I'm not saying that flippantly. They are spouting the words of demons. Again, when somebody questions the word of God, you have someone who is speaking on behalf of the devil. It's just what they're doing. And they question, among other things, the virgin birth of Jesus. And many saying that this doesn't specifically say virgin. And I want to say this very clearly. It specifically does not. You know why? Because the Hebrew language doesn't have a word for virgin. They don't have it. Virgin, for us, is, means a specific thing. It means sexually pure. But if I said, this is a young girl, does that mean virgin to you? Well, I mean, maybe. She's six years old or ten years old. Maybe not. Maybe so. In, in this culture, though, they didn't have a word. Hebrew did not have a word for virgin. They just had a word for maiden. In fact, they had two words for maiden. One referred to a young girl who was under, not the age of marrying, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. That word for maiden is a separate word. It's not the word used here. The word used here is another word. It's the word translated maiden. You probably see a footnote maybe in the bottom of your Bible where it says it may put a little number there next to the word virgin and down the bottom or in the margin you'll see the word maiden because like I said, they didn't have a word for virgin. They had a word for maiden in the sense that she was ready to be married. Real old, like 15 or 16 or 17. Why, why aren't we married? Come on, girls. Mary, Mary, I mean, really, truly, we don't want you to be. We don't want you to be. Watch my mouth. No, we don't want you to be, sweetheart. You just stay home with your parents for the rest of your life. No, don't do that either. <laughs> but when you were their age, they would, you would already be married. You would have had an arranged marriage with a boy that your mom and dad set up with somebody else, and you would be married already. And, and he would not be your age. He would have been... 25, 30 years old. So you always married a girl that was very young to a guy that was much older because the guy had to be able to provide and have a house, which is, I'm thinking, if you're going to marry my daughter, I want, to see, I, want to see your, I want to see your last three bank statements, and I want to see the residence of your house, and I want to see how much you paid down on your mortgage. You know, I want to see all that. I think that's a great idea. And so we're talk, you, can't, you can't be a 17-year-old marrying a 17-year-old because there's no way a guy would have that kind of money kind of, kind of set up. So, so, so they married younger girls to, to older men for that reason, so that the girl would be taken care of. Uh, so the same was true with Jesus. Jesus, of course, if you, know, if you look very carefully in the Scriptures, you'll notice by the time he's an adult, he doesn't have a father. But Joseph's not mentioned, because he's dead. That's what happened. You, you would marry a younger girl, raise children with her, and then by the time your kids were old enough to take care of themselves and their mom, that was, you know, you were 50, 60 years old, and that was the end of life. That was just their, their pattern. So, so anyway, back to this whole conversation. So, so uh, uh, two words for maiden. One is she's too young to marry. The other one in Hebrew is she's ready to be married. But in both cases, the implication was that they were virgins. Again, it's implied, but it's not stated. But in their culture, they didn't state it because it didn't have to be stated. So you're coming to ask me about my 16-year-old girl, and I say she's a maiden, and you say, is she a virgin? You and I are going to have a fight. Of course she is. I'm her father. And by the way, if she wasn't, then the father was responsible to put her to death. That's not just the Arab, you know, Muslim culture. That's, it was Israel culture, Middle Eastern culture, the way they ran things. 
So they had an enforced virginity, if you could say uh, so. So the first thing is, yes, definitely Hebrew does not have a word for, there is not a word. It's not like they could have said virgin, but they don't say virgin. There was not a word for virgin in the Hebrew language, and Isaiah writes in the Hebrew. Again, in their culture, though, if he says maiden, it, it's very socially inappropriate for you to think anything other than that she is a virgin. It's simply implied. But anyway, people want to argue that and say, well, it doesn't say she's a virgin. Well, secondly, let me just, like I said before, what kind of sign is it that a young woman conceives? Isn't that how we all got here? Right? And that's, that's the way it works. I mean, birds and bees, right? You get married, you have kids, you have them young so that they'll leave when you're older, hopefully. Not stay home, girls. Don't get married, but leave. No. Come live with Miss Valerie now. We, we love y'all. It's great. Until, until we don't, then we'll send you back home. So, so uh, what sign is it? So he's, he's saying, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign's going to be that some girl's going to get married and have a baby. Well, <laughs> no sign in that. That's how we all got here. That's like the sun coming up in the morning and light in the morning and getting dark in the evening and that we're breathing in and breathing out. There is absolutely no sign. It was totally ridiculous. Completely ridiculous. It's completely a very, very poor handling of the Scriptures and the thrust of the Scriptures. But in addition to that, it's a very poor scholarship because this Bible, your Old Testament, was written in Hebrew to begin with. And Hebrew is a difficult language because Hebrew is a very nonspecific language. It's very cultural, very highly inflected. It had to do with circumstances. It's a very emotional language. It's very much related to your, uh, more, much more related to Chinese, Japanese, Korean as far as its construct and as far as your culture is concerned, very much so. Very much Eastern people. Western thought, we, we are very specific. And the reason why we're very specific is because we received our, our, our dialect, our language from a god named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was a great tactician, amazing general. And one of the problems that he had, because he had a very small army compared to the Persian, the Persian million-man army that he was trying to fight, and he couldn't afford to mess up because literally you just get sworn by a million men, and that's it. And that's the way they, they just kind of trampled around like this big bear and just trampled over all kinds of nations. So Alexander the Great, realizing that his, because every city-state of Greece had their own Greek dialect, they had their own coin, they had their own... Um, classical Greek language, that you could say one thing to your five generals and it may be taken four different ways. You can't fight a war like that. And so he literally himself sat down and wrote out the Koine Greek language. The Koine, Koine means the agreed upon or the fellowship language. So, so, so uh, Mark over here is the king over the city-state of Thessalonica, and he can go back to his city-state and talk any kind of dialect he wants to, but when we're in military conflicts, we only talk one language, the Koine. Very, very specific, so that when I say turn left in his language, in your language, and their language, all, it all says the same thing. It's common. So, so I say that to say this, three, 200 years before Jesus, 70 Hebrew scholars, and they're Hebrew scholars in Alexandria, Egypt. They're perfect. They, they know the Hebrew very well. By this time, 200 years before Jesus, the Hebrew language is fading. The, the people of Israel have been mixed with the Greeks and have been mixed with the Persians, and so they're speaking a lot of Aramaic, and they're speaking a lot, and by this time, speaking a lot of Greek. So these 70 scholars come together, and they decide to translate the Old Testament, the only Bible they had was the Old Testament, out of the Hebrew... Into, from a very less specific language to a very specific language, 
called the Koine Greek, and that's what they did. It's called the Septuagint. Every time, just so you know how important the Septuagint is, every time a writer in the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, they do not quote from the Hebrew, they quote from the Septuagint. It's extremely important translation. I've got it up in my office. You're welcome to read it. I've read it already. It's, it's, it's an English translation of the Greek. Don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not reading Greek. But So they, what they do is they take a very a much more loose language, if we can say that, Hebrew, and they translate it into a very tight language called the Koine Greek. And when they came to this verse, in order to interpret the, not just the force, not just the word, maiden, because that can mean anything possibly, they, they interpreted the force of it, which is ultimately virgin, and they turned the word from maiden, Hebrew, I don't know the Hebrew word, but they turned it into the Greek word, Parthenon or Parthenos. You probably heard the word Parthenon. It's the way the Greeks referred to their uh, temples. They called them the places of virginity. There was no virgins up there, believe me on that one. But uh, they would refer to them that way, the Parthenos. When, when Mary is, is, is confronted by the angel and told that she's going to give birth to the Son of God, she said, how can this be since I am a Parthenos? Very specific word that can only mean one thing, virgin. Virgin, 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 100% virgin. So, so Hebrew scholars in Alexandria, 70 of them, translate the Old Testament into a very specific language, the Koine Greek, and how do they translate the word for maiden? Virgin. So these knuckleheads and yehus with all these letters after their names, they're lying. They're just flat liars, and there's a real reason. And most of them, I would say, give them the benefit of the doubt, are they intending to lie to us, intend us to lead us down the devil's paths, I don't think so necessarily. I wouldn't call them personally evil, but they are certainly listening to the devil. And I wouldn't give you two seconds for them or anything they teach. Be careful of those that contradict the scriptures. Be careful. We have a young lady who used to be a part of our church years ago who is involved in a church right now that's telling her there's no such thing as a virgin birth. And I've had some heated conversations with her in which she's told me that I'm wrong, that you could do that. And, um, but I'm not. But what she doesn't know is that she's throwing out, so what does it matter, that's what she said to me, that Jesus was virgin born? I said it mattered to God, first of all. You don't need to know anything beyond that. But it actually matters in the sense of the way things work out, and I want to show that to you. Why? Why, why be virgin born? Why should it matter? Like I said, Mary, Mary asked the same question. How is it possible for a virgin to give birth? And what was the response? The Holy Spirit will overshadow you? He didn't say, you know, you and, you, and, you, and, uh, you and Joseph need to go find a JP pretty quick because we got to get this baby made, right? That's not what he says. He says the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you and so that the son that is produced within your womb is going to be called the Son of God. But she, here's, here's, her, here's the statement in Matthew about her situation. So this is how the birth, the birth of Jesus Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, that's virgin, she was found to be pregnant with, by the, through the Holy Spirit. How, how much more information do you need than that? How can these yahoos, knuckleheads, say that the Scripture doesn't teach this? And then it quotes from, from Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call his name Emmanuel. But God had already tipped his hat about the virgin birth before Isaiah. Have you seen that one? Genesis 3, we talked about that one. I'm sure we have. Genesis 3, 15 and 16. So this is the curse. Adam and Eve just ate the apple or whatever it was. And uh, uh, God's coming and making a pronouncement, a curse, and he's also making a prophecy over both of them of what's going to happen in the future. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, the snake, 
and the woman. In between your seed, the product that would come, it's ultimately speaking, it's a singular word in the Hebrew, literally speaking of the Antichrist, and her seed. Now, that's a translation, that capital S there, that's the, this is the New King James Version, and they're, they're translating that for you. They're not just, uh, in, they're, I'm sorry, they're not just translating it, they're interpreting it for you. They're putting a capital S on there because they recognize that this is referring to none other than Jesus. Between your seed and her seed. Now, I don't know when the last time you had Biology 101. I'm going to let your parents talk to your, your young people, but women don't have seed. That's a male thing. Unless we're talking about a miracle here, which is exactly. So God doesn't need, don't you remember how this works, God? You created it one way, and this is how babies come, and you know they don't come under a cabbage leaf or anything. Don't you know that? No, God didn't need a Biology 101. He knows how it works. He's telling you something that is supernatural over biology, that a woman would have seed. So, so it brings us back and begs the question, why? Is it because, like I said this morning, because God's just showing off? Well, I'll show you something. All you got here through, through a woman who was not a virgin, but there's going to be one that comes who, without the instrumentality of a man, I'll just show you what I can do just because I can show off. Is that why he does this? Well, let me just back up again. Why was he born at all? I mean, didn't he create Adam and Eve out of the dust? He created Eve out of a rib. He created Adam out of the dirt. He added water. So why didn't he just, you know, poof, Jesus is here. He creates him at 33, and Jesus has a 30 and has a three-year ministry, and Jesus doesn't have to go through all the growing up and being a carpenter's son for the first 30 years of his life, being born in a stable, laid in a manger, or fleeing to Egypt, and then being raised in a no-count town like Nazareth. Why do that? Why? Well, first of all, because the Scripture tells us that he would experience everything that we would experience and yet be without sin. That includes being born. So he has to be born. Why virgin birth then? What's the purpose of that? Well, first of all, he has to be born because we have to have a man to take our place. You see, in the Old Testament, animals died to take the place of people, but animals cannot pay for sin. Because it has to be one for one. So if I sin and Les lays down his life for my sins, Les goes to hell for me. Thanks, Les. And I go scot-free. Man for man, right? But if, if it was a goat, a goat can't pay. So I was gonna, we used Angel's credit card this morning. I told her I was going to borrow it again. So if you think about the Old Testament system of sacrifice as a credit card system, God was just simply writing off the sins of people on credit until they were going to be paid off. The goats and bulls and doves and pigeons, just credit card. Just a credit card. The one who's coming, who's going to pay the bill, his name is Jesus. The sins were not paid for by these animals. They were just covered. Just covered. The bill wasn't due at the end of the month. It was due at the end, end of the season when God had, when Jesus came in the fullness of time to pay for our sins. So, so Jesus has to be a man. He has to be a man. But there's a problem with being a man is that every man and woman that's born on this earth who is a descendant of Adam, Adam inherits Adam's sin. So how do you bring a man into the world who is perfect and pure, but without sin? You, 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 how can he be a man and be perfect and pure? It, it's not possible unless, unless you have a virgin birth. So now you're starting to get the idea. Why does he have to be born? Because he has to be a man, because only a man can pay for man's sins. But, but why a virgin birth? Because there is a sin problem that's inherited. We all got it. 
Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, but everyone after that was created in their image because they were born into a sin situation, creation that's been cursed. So, so God, I, I want to move around this to another situation that, that we read over and we probably don't pay attention to. All the way in Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 28 and 30. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Because it's a circumstance of one of the descendants of David, descendant of David through Solomon, who during Jeremiah's um, uh, tenure as a prophet was just as worthless as Ahaz. Some of these kings were just, I mean, not worth two cents, not worth a, a, a burnt match. And uh, one of these guys is a guy that he's called here Coniah, but his actual name is Jeconiah. And this is God speaking about him, but you can tell his opinion of Jeconiah because he removes the part of, of Jeconiah's name that refers to God. They always would name themselves something in reference to God or some way of worship God, and the Jeh was the same as Jehovah, the first part of his name. So God just cuts that off. You're not going to call yourself after me. This guy wasn't worth a burnt match. He was king. But is this man, here, listen to the mistake, seemingly mistake God makes, because of course, how does Jesus come? He's going to be born a descendant of David. That's a genetic thing. Of course, come through a virgin. But why a virgin? Can, can anybody, or when there are a lot of people, wasn't Isaiah even born of a descendant of David? Yes, he was. But he's going to come in the line of the kings, and Coniah was, was, Jeconiah was the line of the kings, but watch. Is this man, Coniah, a despised and broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which he was exiled? He was not king very long, and he was sent to exile in Babylon. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as a childless. He had kids, by the way. Notice very specifically, he's considered childless as far as their heirs. There's a man who shall not prosper in his days, speaking of Coniah, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David, ruling any more over Judah. Uh-oh, that's bad. Because all the kings, he, he was a descendant from David through Solomon. So now, what has God done? You ever done something when you got angry, and then as soon as you did it, you say, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Oh. So, so is God breathing in saying, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Now what I promised about David, he had the line of David has been broken here, ladies and gentlemen. God broke it himself. It's a blood curse over any descendant of Coniah. Coniah had a lot of descendants. But none of them, he says, were going to sit upon the throne of David. So what's God going to do? It has to be a descendant of David that sits on the throne. The Messiah has to be a descendant of David. So has God cut off his nose to spot his face here? Looks like God's made a mistake. I'd be willing to bet in, the, in the, the lair of the devil they threw a party probably thinking God had messed up and cursed his own Messiah. Well, there, God had tipped his hat to us already about how he's going to get around this problem. In Genesis 3, a virgin would conceive. See, the, the heirship of the land and everything else, including the sin, passed through the men, not through the women. So if you could just simply get a woman to conceive without the instrumentality of a man, then you have a perfect candidate. But he has to be a bloodline of David. Man, there's a lot of things you've got to work out here. So, so we have in the New Testament, this, this explains why we have in the New Testament two genealogies. I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 3. But first I want to refer you to the, and maybe you want to go to Matthew as well. In fact, let's just go to Matthew first. 
Because you have these two genealogies of Jesus given to us. One is given by Matthew. Now, Matthew writes his book in order to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the king. And so he starts genealogy with going back to the first Jewish king, the prince, Abraham, the first prince of his people. So this genealogy, if you'll notice, starts way back there in verse 1, chapter 1 of Matthew, to Abraham was born Isaac, to Isaac was born. So he goes back to Abraham. That's as far back as he needs to trace because, again, what is his point? He's trying to prove that Jesus has a right to the throne, that he has a right because he's a descendant of David and that David descended through Abraham and that Jesus was born in this line. And so that's his whole point. He's trying to prove it. But if you look down in verse 16, and notice this is, of course, this is the line. This is the lineage of, of Joseph. So to jo Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So this is the lineage of Jacob. Notice very carefully Jacob's father's name. His father's name was Jacob. Joseph's father. His name was Jacob. Now, uh, we have another genealogy over in the book of Luke, and I want to ask you to turn there. Luke chapter 3. This is the second genealogy, starting down in verse, uh, let's see. Starts down in verse 23 and uh, following. It, it one is a descending uh, genealogy. It starts at the top and goes to the bottom, if you will. Starts with Abraham, goes to Jesus. The other one starts with Jesus and goes the opposite direction. Now, Matthew's burden is to prove to the Jewish people that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the King. He's of the line of David. Luke is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. His genealogy is just simply to prove that Jesus was a man. So he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. If you look down there, verse, what is it? All the way down, all the way down to verse 38. To Enosh was born the son of Seth, and to Seth the son of Adam, and of course Adam the son of God. So he's tracing it all the way back to prove that Jesus was a man, because Luke is not interested in his heirship to the throne, because Luke's not a Jew. The problem is, or the issue is, if you'll look down in verse 23. Contradiction, seemingly. It says, when Jesus began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph, it says, who was the son of Eli. Now, now wait a minute. We just saw him put it on the screen for you. We just saw in Matthew chapter 1, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom born was Jesus, who was called, that's one lineage, right? And then now we have over here in Luke, it says, now Jesus himself began his ministry about 30 years of age, being, as it was supposed, the son of Joseph, who was the son of Eli. So, so wait a minute, how, how can Joseph have two different fathers? See, I told you there's contradictions in the scriptures. No, I didn't tell you that, I told you the contradictions are between your ears. Anytime you have a contradiction in the scriptures, it's because you don't know enough. Let it be what it is. But... But what you have here is two different genealogies through two different people. Actually, the one on the bottom, the one in Luke, is not Joseph's genealogy. It's actually Mary's. But women were not named in genealogies. Joseph is named in her place because he's a son by law. Son-in-law, we say that all the time. But he's literally a son by law. It was the prerogative of any father who gave his son, daughter away to a man to adopt that son at, by law. He could be his son. So in our culture, we, we just use the words, and we really don't think of it that way. In their culture, it was a very serious thing, especially when it came to heritage and inheritance. 
So it's perfectly, uh, perfectly acceptable, perfectly legal for Eli or Heli to adopt Joseph as his son. So Joseph makes it into the lineage of Mary by adoption. He's not actually physically a, a descendant of Heli. But, but I want you to notice, back to our story of Jeconiah, Jeconiah is also of the lineage of David, or lineage, a lineage of David, a lineage of Joseph in, in the book of Matthew. And, and it's through Solomon. But, but look down here, uh, if you'll look down in verse, um, verse 31. So in, and why don't, we can go back to Matthew if you want to, but you can see there that it says there, David begat Solomon, who begat Rehoboam, who begat the next, I can't remember the next guy in line, uh, who was there. But notice it says here that David begat who? Verse 31. Nathan. Nathan was one of his sons. So way back before God ever pronounced a blood curse on one of the descendants of David, way down the line after Solomon, David, God had already made an end run around the whole story of Jeconiah, knowing what he was going to do. So the devils were throwing a big party because God has somehow cursed his Messiah, and God's already sitting up in heaven saying, sorry guys. I've already got this one figured out. Centuries before, he's already made an end run, and that end run was there was going to be a separate line of David through Nathan, and Nathan was going to be the ultimate ancestor of a woman named Mary. Full blood, a descendant of David, but a virgin. So Jesus receives his physical right to the throne through Mary, but a woman can't inherit the throne. He, physically, he, he inherits his legal right through Joseph, who is his legal father, son by law. And so he has every right to be king just through those things. So God makes a total end run around the whole process of the curse, the blood curse of Jeconiah through the, uh, through the virgin birth. But he not only makes an end run around the curse of Jeconiah, he also makes an end run around the curse of Adam. Adam has the bigger curse. So, so Jeconiah's curse, what does that mean to me? And what's the, like I said, what has that got to do with the price of tea in China here on South Padre Island? We've got a bunch of Gentiles sitting here. Because, guys, no, we're not Jewish, but we are human. We're all Jewish or not, we're descended from Adam, and Adam was, has a blood curse on him. All those born in Adam are born into sin. And God has made a way around Adam by bringing a man into this world apart from the, instrument, apart from the heritage of sin that comes through a male. To a virgin. So is a virgin birth important? You bet it is. It's critical. It's absolutely critical. If Jesus wasn't virgin born, then he's not the son of God. If he's not the son of God, he can't pay for your sins. I'm sorry. I don't care how good a person he was. If he can't pay for your sins, you're going to die in them. So, whoa, is it a critical, critical doctrine. It's not something we can just simply write off. So, so a man was born without the curse through the virgin birth, God has gone around all the curse and all the things, and the, even not just Jeconiah, but all the curse that came through Adam. And it's very explicit here in the New Testament, several places, 1 Corinthians 15 uh, and Romans, several places. For since by a man came death, why do we all die? Adam, not Eve. We talked about that in Sunday school, the men who were in my Sunday school class. Why is that? This, this chick is the first, she's the one that sinned and talked her husband into it. I think she should have gotten it. I, I, I remain ticked. I remain ticked. But the system that God set up with, when there was a man and a woman, the man is the leader. And so the whole race doesn't rise and fall on the woman, it rises and falls on the man. And did the man abdicate his responsibilities? He certainly did. What a bonehead. 
But God did not blame Eve for it. He blamed Adam. It was Adam's sin that plunged us in. It was because of Adam. So you can have a woman having a baby without the instrumentality of man if you could actually pull that off. You'll have a sinless child. Only God can do that. But if it comes by birth of a man, you're going to have a sinner born in your house. Anybody give birth to any sinners? We had three of them. My mom had two. I was one. Sinners, all of us. Naturally, you don't have to teach them how to sin. You don't have to talk to them about sin. They just they can they breathe it. It's who they are. It's their nature. We're born that way. Jesus was not born that way because he was born of a virgin. God makes an end run through, through for since by man death came death by man a capital M also came the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die. Count it, count it carefully. Not a single one is going to live. Even so in Christ, what, to be born again through him? So you're born physically through the instrumentality of Adam, right? You're going to inherit sin that way, 100%. You're born spiritually through the rebirth of Christ, you will live. How effective was Adam's sin? No one lived. 100% of people who've ever lived are going to die. Have died, going to die, for sure. Everybody born in Christ is going to live. If, if the sin was that effective, how much more effective do you think the righteousness of Christ is? Oh boy. Can it be more than 100%? I don't know how you get above 100%. But it, it is going to be above. Uh, here's Romans, same thing. Chapter, verse 17, chapter 5. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, literally one man, Jesus Christ. So, so, so why did, was there a virgin? Because there had to be. There was another way. There's a man on the throne of God today because of the virgin birth. A Jewish man. That's a wild thought. Why bother with all this? Because God wants to demonstrate how great his love is. God intentionally made us, knowing what we would do, set up the situation, knowing that we would mess it up, knowing that the only remedy would be for himself to become a man and die to pay for our sins. He did all from the beginning. He knew all that. Here we have Ephesians 2, 7. What's the purpose of the death and resurrection incarnation of God? That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we are and will be the demonstration of God's infinite love for all eternity. So let's go back. We've got to finish up Isaiah chapter 7. And the chapter ends by, so we flash forward in one verse to, to the virgin birth and to this ultimate one, this Emmanuel, God with us, who was going to be coming through a virgin's womb. And then verse 15, we go right back to the current events of the day, because he's not talking about Jesus anymore. He's, talking about the, he's actually talking about Isaiah's son in this case. He had a young son, that's why he said, take your son with you, because his son was going to be a marker. Isaiah, not just his ministry was not just words, it was also he had a family who he named his kids some kind of, we're going to talk about this next time, he named them certain names because their names meant certain prophetic things for the history of Israel, and this is one of them. This one child, this, this young child that he brought with him, he, this child, will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. The land of these two kings will, will, that you dread will be forsaken. So, so before this child is very old, 
God's going to overthrow these northern kingdoms that are trying to invade Israel. And just so you know, curds and honey are not... Uh, if I told you you were going to drink sweet milk and honey, does that sound like, a, sound like a bad thing or a good thing? It sounds like a good thing because we're from the west. But we're not from the east. In the, in the east, this was rations. This is what desert dwellers ate. Them, you're not feasting unless you're having bread. So since you don't hear any bread in the equation, you know immediately they're on a starvation diet. Curds and honey doesn't sound bad, right? What if that's all you had? That was the desert dwellers is what they ate. That's what they ate. It's, it's, a, it's an idiom for poverty or deprivation. So this isn't a good thing. It implies bad times. And so now, of course, we're talking about Isaiah's son, so it's shifting back to current events. Let's keep going, verse 17. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah to the king, and the king of Assyria. And it will come about in that day that the Lord will whistle for a fly that is in the remotest parts. He's talking about the Babylonians. The remotest parts of the rivers of, of Egypt. And I'm sorry, that's the Egyptians. And for a bee that is in the land of Assyria, that's the Babylonians. And they will all come and settle on the steep ravines and the ledges of the cliffs, on all the thorn bushes and all the watering places. And in that day the Lord will shave with a razor hired from the regions beyond the Euphrates. Again, it's the Babylonians. That is, with the king of Assyria and the head and the hair and the legs, and it will all be removed. That doesn't sound like torture, does it? So they shaved your whole body. What does that mean? Hair was a big deal to them. A couple of places you read in the Bible is if, like for instance, David sends his emissaries over to uh, Moab, I'm sorry, Ammon, to, to express his regrets that their king, their, the father of the king, had died. And the, the prince, the, the son of the king who died, thought it was some kind of spies. In fact, that was the advice they got. And so as it says they shaved half of their beards. Shaved half of their beards, and they cut off their, their, um, their robes at the bottom of their rear end so that you could... It was short shorts, if you will. Now, the embarrassing thing for them was not that their skin was exposed on their backsides, but that the skin was exposed on their faces because that didn't happen. You, a, a man grew a beard as fast as he could, and he never shaved it again. You were never supposed to see the face, the skin here, the skin, the facial skin of a man. And if you ever did, it was considered very shameful. So, it, it, so for instance, like, like for instance, when you when you got leprosy and you were healed from it, you were required as a as a sign of repentance and as a sign of the sin that had brought you to that place. You were you were required to shave your whole body. It was this very very humiliating thing. It was again a statement of of deprivation and of humility. And so God says, listen, I'm sending for these great, powerful kingdoms, and they're going to come and shave every one of you. We're like, so throw me in the briar patch. I don't care. I shave every day. For them, very, very dishonoring. Like, better to die than to have this kind of experience. Extremely humiliating experience for them. So God's predicting that something is going to be very bad. Israel is very leprous, if you will, from their sin, and God's coming to shave them. Let's keep reading. So the razor's going to come. Now it will come about in that day that a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep, and this is just a few animals. This is a kind of poverty situation. And it will, be, it will happen that because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds, and for everyone that is left within the land, eat curds and honey. Again, even though it says he's got an abundance, he doesn't. He's going to have all these animals that can produce all this stuff, and yet he can't even buy bread with it? Yeah, that's the... It sounds good in our ears, but it's not. 
With them, you're eating good when you have bread. They don't have any. It'll come about in that day that every place where there used to be thousands of vines and value of a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. Again, like I said, it's coming, not bad times he's talking, good times he's talking about. It's bad times. People will come there and with bows and arrows because of all the land with all the briars and thorns. And as for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of the briars and thorns, and they will become a place of pasturing oxen for the sheep to trample. So he's not just talking about the judgment upon the northern kingdom of Assyria, of Syria and uh, Israel. He's also talking about what's coming for Judah. But don't, don't get all excited about the fact that I'm going to judge these northern kingdoms because what's coming for you is going to be just as bad. And as rich as you are and as nice as things are and as good as your food is, it will not last. I'm going to put an end to that. So I'm just telling you right now. Things are not going to be they're not going to go, everything's going to go back to nature. What was cultivated, what was settled, what was cared for is going to go back and be overgrown because of God's judgments. Now, Israel set fallow for the past 2,000 years. You know, the, the Arabs and the Crusaders had cut down every single tree in Israel over the millennia uh, from all the wars and everything. So when Israel moved back in 1948, there was literally no trees in the land whatsoever, just bleak nothingness. You read the Old Testament in particular, Israel was covered with forests. Is that what you think of when you think of Israel? No, because all you know is modern Israel, or I should say since the time of Jesus' Israel. The land's been cursed, been untended. Uh, the Arabs, for the most part, we call them Palestinians today, they're nothing but Saudi Arabian Arabs. That's all. The whole land has been occupied by Arabs for 500 years, 600 years. They're uh, Bedouins. They're they're, uh, uh, they just travel from place to place. They, just, they raise sheep. They don't settle anywhere. They're more or less like the American West Indians. They're kind of, kind of wild. Uh, they, don't, they didn't settle anywhere, grow anything, and they didn't for five or 600 years. They didn't care for the land whatsoever, and the land completely debilitated, eroded, destroyed, uh, undone, exactly like God said, covered with briars and thorns. Now today, Israel's been in the land now for not, since 1948, and you can look at an aerial view of Israel in real time with color, with actual color, and you can see the outline of Israel because Israel's all green. Further south, all the way north, and all the countries around it, all the Arab countries, the, Lebanon, the Lebanese, the, the Jordanians, the, the Egyptians to the south, their lands are still still just as desolate. God is blessing that land. He's coming, the blessings of God are coming on that. You can see it, like I said, you can see it just because of the simple color. So amazing stuff. All right, we'll stop right there. Questions? Laura. Uh, you were talking about the hardening, how God will harden hearts. And I've been reading about Pharaoh and how every single time <laughs> God hardened his heart yes and it, and then do you think that or or is it scriptural that that is like the chosen people and then there are people that are just destined to be used by God well I, I would say destined in the sense that God knows, wasn't surprised that he saw them. He didn't like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this guy rebelled against me. That never, you'll never hear God say anything like that. So we talk about predestination and we talk about all these things. You have to remember, God's foreknowledge is 100%. So as far as we're concerned, no, the guy had a choice. And he did. 
as far as God's concerned, he already knew what the choice was. So he was predestined to that hardening from, from, from eternity, just like you're predestined to salvation because God already knows what you're going to do. There's nothing he, he doesn't know, and there was not a time in the past in which he did not know it. So from, from where God sits, which is real hard to wrap your mind around, God already knows everything. It's all, it's all done. You and I are plotting through time as if, we ha- as if we have a choice. And we do have a choice. It's just that God already knows what those are. In the fullness of the Gentiles. Why? Because he already knows the number. He knows every last one of them. And that might mess with you. I'm not trying to mess with your, your theology. I'm trying to, we do need you to be mature in the way we think. And part of the reason why we have the scriptures is so we can understand how God thinks. It doesn't remove our responsibility. I'm not trying to say people don't have that Pharaoh didn't have responsibility. In fact, it says at the beginning that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then after that, every time it says God hardened his heart. So God hardened, even though this happened to Egypt and they were decimated, God hardened his heart. He went to the next, you know, all through the ten plagues. So, so yes, yeah, that's, that's a, uh, it's hard to wrap your brain around. So do we have a choice whether we go to heaven or hell? Absolutely we do. Does God already know what those choices are? Absolutely he does. So heaven and hell are set. They already are. Now, I don't, I'm not privy to who's coming and who's, who's not. We're, we're called to go out and reach the whole world. The fact is that those who are in either place, are not, none of them are going to be a shock to God at all. It's just the facts. It's just what it means to be God. So was he predestined to do evil? You could say that. Yeah, he really was. But again, because God knows. So all things are working together according to the will of God who works all things to, according to his will, and that's what's happening. And um, you and I, the best we can do is be in the middle of that will, make our decisions every day, uh, repenting every day uh, to follow him. So, Something else? Perfectly clear. Yes, ma'am. I'd just like to ask you a question again about that Nathan, uh, where it says Nathan was the son of David, but uh, you said that Nathan uh, came from, that his lineage was from Mary. Uh, how, how is his lineage, he was an ancestor of Mary. He, he is the ancestor of Mary because David had a bunch of sons, not just Solomon. Solomon sat on the throne, but David had a bunch of different sons. It names a bunch of them in the Old Testament. David's one of those, Nathan, I'm sorry, is one of those. So, but God chose, even though we would assume God would choose the line of Solomon because Solomon was the one that sat on the throne, that's not the line of David that God chose. God chose the line of Nathan. To, to receive the, so that through the line of David, David received his physical, I'm sorry, Jesus would receive his physical body. Still a son of Jesus. I'm sorry, Jesus is still a son of David genetically. But he's not a son of Adam genetically because you have a virgin birth. He's not a son of Jeconiah genetically because Jeconiah is another set of cousins on the other side of the line of David. Does that make sense? So your grandparents had how many kids? Your mom and how many others? You have other aunts and uncles? Well, all of them are descendants of your grandparents. But they're, they're, not, necessarily, they're not necessarily your descendants. Uh, any kid that you have is not their descendants. They're related to each other. The same is true with the line of David. David did have like 10 sons. And these are all of the line of David. Several important people in your Old Testament are of the line of David. Daniel is of the royal line. So is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as far as we can tell. They're all Davidic. They're all of the line of David. Isaiah is of the line of David. They're all royal blood. 
Now you think about these guys. I mean, they had four or five, six different women. They had kids with all of them, and then their sons would have four or five. I mean, David populated Israel. I mean, he really did. It was a little hard to find one that wasn't uh, of the line of David. Now today, good luck, by the way, they are, uh, Israel is, is we talk, I think we talked about this last time, but Israel, of course, is delving very heavily. Israel, of course, very smart people. Very heavily into genetics because they're trying to determine what the genome of an Israeli is, and they've done that. And then not only they've determined what the genome of an Israeli is, now they're working out all the tribes. And they started, by the way, with the tribes of the priests because that's very important to them. Who are the priestly tribes? Uh, you may be, you may have anybody grow up with Jews around Jews? I didn't. I grew up in East Texas, a bunch of rednecks over there. You may grow up or work around Jews. Not many of you. None of you. So all of you are poor people. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> the Jews typically are in the situation of money. If you were in banking or something, you're around, if you're around jewelry cutting, if you're around money, uh, you know, Jews. If, if you've been around Jews very much, you'll hear the last name Cohen, C-O-H-E-N. There are several actors with the last name. That word in Hebrew is the word priest. They inherited that name. They found out that a lot of them who are named Cohen don't have the priestly line, genetically speaking, but a lot of them do. In fact, a big bunch of them came out of Africa, out of Ethiopia. There was a bunch of black people in Ethiopia claiming to be Jews. Guess what? They ran their genetic tests on them, 100% Jews. So Jews can be white people, Jews can be black people, Jews can be in-between people because we're not, our skin color is not genetic. I mean, well, it is, but it's, it's an adaptation over time. You live on South Padre Island and have kids down here long enough, you will turn into a Mexican, I promise you. Either that or you die of skin cancer because you're going to get dark down here. Because we were out in the sun all the time. It's a, it's a matter of exposure. Of course, the Middle Eastern people and African people didn't have sunscreen, and the sun was out all the time, and so they were out in the sun. If your ancestors moved north into a colder climate, you wore clothes all the time and didn't go out in the sun. Guess what happened over centuries? You get whiter and whiter, and here you go. It's, where, are my, where are my ancestors from? The far reaches of England and northern Ireland? I mean, that's where we're from. So we're all white people. That just, it's just an adaptation over centuries. It's just what we do. And then we start separating ourselves, saying we're of this race and that race. There's no races in the Bible. Oh, there is a race, the human race. It all came from Adam and then all bottlenecked at Noah, and then here we are, you know, where we are. So, all right? It's all good? All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for trusting us with your word. I pray that we would prove ourselves trustworthy, that we would listen to it, that we would heed it that we would invest in it. We wouldn't just say, uh, tell me something good. Instead, God, we would come to you and say, God, whatever you say is the truth. Help us to be so deeply involved in your word, so aware, so committed to it, God, so controlled by it, that our lives would be visibly different in this world. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptistchurch.org.